Tonight is 2 Samuel chapter 13. Uh, if you'll take your Bible and be finding 2 Samuel chapter 13, we'll look at that tonight somewhat in depth. Not the entire chapter, we're going to split it in two. One of the effects of sin that we see and one of the way that sin operates in the world is it takes good things uh, and it twists them unto the destruction of men and women. You can see it in the example of a person who's a good teacher. There are, there are many people that are good at rhetoric and oratory and have natural gifts of communication and they become false teachers and they use their gifts to lead people astray. In the text tonight, we see uh, the, the, what should be the beauty of family love uh, and fatherly protection twisted, and it's turned into hatred, uh, and it leads to heartbreak. Essentially, what chapter 13 is about, it is about the outplaying of the consequence of David's sin. Back in chapter 12 and verse 10, The scripture says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. This sword not departing from David's house. That's what we see in much of the rest of 2 Samuel. And that's not all we see. We also see David's faithfulness. But we see that his life is forever affected because of sin and it affects the rest of his family another purpose of chapter 13 is to introduce Absalom who is going to be essentially a major factor in the carrying out of the sword not departing from David's house that's why in chapter 13 verse 1 now Absalom that's how the chapter begins that uh, this is a horrible chapter about depravity and it begins by introducing you to Absalom David's son. And essentially what follows is an account of rape and lust and murder and hatred and exile. Uh, That this is just one of the most sordid chapters in all of the Bible. And it it is just a cautionary warning to all of us. And I I think you see in in detail some of the errors, the sins of Amnon and Jonadab And Absalom and David played out before us. Chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Abnon, David's son, loved her. And Abnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shammah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. He said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and Give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. 
And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I might eat from her hand. Now notice we see Absalom, David's son. You notice the specifics about family life here described. And then had a beautiful sister. The last time we're introduced to a beautiful woman in this account, it didn't end well. So This is how Bathsheba is described at the beginning of chapter 11. And, of course, you see the way David treated her. And it's almost like it's repeating itself here, depravity repeating itself, but the consequences even being greater, the sin even being graver. Because, again, this is very specific. It's his sister. Over and over again, it mentions that it's his sister, and her name was Tamar. And, of course, um, relations with a sister is strictly forbidden in the Scripture. This is clear in numerous places in the Old Testament. And it's even specific if it's a half-sister, absolutely forbidden by the Word of God. Well, what can we learn from this? Well, from that passage we just read, we learn to beware the danger of a wicked counselor. You beware the danger of a wicked counselor. And that's Jonadab. That's Jonadab. He's a very crafty man. Notice he's in the family. He knows David. He knows Absalom, and notice also he's a friend of Absalom's. You've got to be careful who your children are friends with. You've got to be aware of what they're doing and how they're counseling, especially your children. We've got to be aware of who influences our children and who's influencing our family. We've even got to be aware of family members. That's what you have here. Jonadab is Amnon's cousin. David doesn't know, evidently, what's going on in his house. And Jonadab evidently knows a thing or two about David, because he sure crafted a plot to appeal to David's sensibilities. It's reminiscent of Psalm 1, to blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. There is a danger of ungodly counsel. And of course, the great warning of this text is to... Beware the deception of lust. To beware the deception of lust. And look at how lust had had afflicted and affected Amnon. Look at how it's described in verse 2. Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill. Lust affects the mind. It affects the heart. It has the power to enslave. And what you see here in Amnon is a man enslaved to his lust. It's going to play out in terrible course in his life. And then Jonadab notices it. it. It's affecting his life. It's affecting his demeanor. It's noticeable. Noticeable to this friend. Why are you so haggard? It's affected him. This lust has. He gives him this counsel and it's followed through. And then we pick it up in verse 7. David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, baked the cakes. She took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. Now now notice how Tamar is presented here. She's obedient to her father. She's also good at her domestic duties. She's, look at the details about making the cake. But of course, deceptive Amnon refuses to eat, and then says, send out everyone from me. So 
everyone went out from him. Now, now remember the ominous statement at the end of verse 2. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for Amnon to do anything to her. So you see his insidious plan here, to do something to her. Send everyone out, verse 10. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber of Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Well, you look at, look at Tamar's desperate please. And of course, they're both ignored because Amnon is so blinded by his lust. She gives him reasons. And in fact, she speaks in terms of right and wrong. She recognizes right and wrong. And notice, again, the familial relation is emphasized. Come lie with me, my sister. No, my brother, do not violate me. And this word violate appears four times in this chapter. It's found there in that verse, in verse 12. It's found in verse 14. Notice it there. He violated her. It's found in verse 22 because he had violated his sister Tamar. And it's found in verse 32. At the very end, the day he violated his sister Tamar. You see, you see what lust leads to? It leads to outrageous sin. And that's how it's described here. Such a thing is not done in Israel, meaning a, a, a sister and a brother. She knows the word of God. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? As for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools. Look at how she describes this lust. It leads to outrageous sin. That word outrageous is a form of the word fool. Do you remember in, I believe it's 1 Samuel, where you meet uh, Abigail and, and her, her husband's name is Nabal. It's the word that means fool. That's this word. It's a foolish thing. It's an outrageous thing. And incidentally, in other places in the Old Testament, this same word is applied to premarital sex as an outrageous thing and to homosexual behavior as an outrageous thing. These sexual sins are outrageous. They make one into a fool is the implication. And we see here lust leading Amnon and lust we know leads people to do outrageous, foolish things. It's just simply unreasonable. It defies logic. It's just madness. The choices people make because of their lust. This is why, friends, we've got to put it to death when it raises its ugly head. We've got to kill it. John Owen wisely said, either be killing sin or it will be killing you. We've got to put it to death because the consequences are grave. This is why there's so many warnings in the book of Proverbs, in that case about the dangers of adultery. 
These are outrageous things. And then she talks about her shame. That, that Essentially, she's not ever going to be able to recover from this. So we see the gravity of the sin played out as Tamar is explaining the implications and consequences of this sin. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Now, that's an odd statement because, again, this is not permitted under the law of God. The marriage of, of a half-sister and a half-brother. No, this is not permitted. I think, I think likely she is just saying this and trying to use it as a means of doing everything she can to try to escape from him. Could be wrong. Maybe David's depravity extends to such an extent that he might grant a request like this. I don't know. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than her, he violated her and lay with her. Not only does lust lead to outrageous sin, lust violates others. It harms others. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. This is what we see with Bathsheba, where so many are affected by that. Uriah, Uriah's family, Bathsheba, the baby. And now you see Amnon violating Tamar. This is where we need to just be wise and recognize the difference in lust and love. These are terms our culture and our world terribly confuses. And you see, um, Amnon is ill, seemingly, and haggard because of the lustful desire in his heart. There's a great difference in lust and love, even though our world uses these synonymously. Love expresses itself in self-sacrifice. Love expresses itself in long-term commitment. Love expresses itself in care for the other person. You think of the Ephesians 5 text. One of the husband's responsibilities to love his wife as Christ loved the church, to cherish and nourish her. This is how love expresses itself. We see here in this passage, horribly, how lust expresses itself. What I want, when I want, how I want. And then, regardless of the consequences, it's about self-fulfillment. It's about satisfying yourself, which again is the message of our modern day culture and world. One of the analogies I heard about sex that I found helpful from Tommy Nelson uh, was the, the analogy of the fireplace. That a fireplace is a good invention. And fire that's kept in the fireplace is a good thing. So where I grew up, my house was heated by three fireplaces. I grew up with wood heat. And man, uh, having a day off and it's 20 degrees outside and sitting in front of the fire, that fire is a good thing to have it can be a very good thing but if the coals get out in the house if the fire gets out of the fireplace where it's supposed to be contained and gets out on the rug or on the couch or in the home it can destroy the house and that's the way sex is when confined within marriage as God intends it's a good thing but when it gets out and gets out of control it can just burn everything that's what we see here and, I, and I, I think that many people are unable and unequipped to tell the difference between lust and love. And this is where I think part of our responsibility as parents or grandparents to instruct and teach our children about the differences in these things. There's a reason, again, why Proverbs is addressed to young boys. It's, it's, it comes across as instruction from a father to a son. And again, the main message of Proverbs 1 through 11 is about wisdom and it's about avoiding the adulteress. I mean, this is the most consistent teaching. The, the one that would play on your lusts. 
Because we all know TV, media, movies are having their effect. And they are incredibly sordid, are they not? Lust violates others. So we need to beware the deception of lust. Secondly, or thirdly, first was about we beware a, a, a devious counselor. We beware the deception of lust. Thirdly, we beware the devastation of lust. Now we see the devastation and the fallout beginning in verse 15. It's going to extend to the rest of the end of the chapter. Verse 15, then, then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. She said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. And she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. This is the devastation lust brings. And the consequences we're going to focus on here are hatred and desolation. Verse 15, Amnon hated her with, so, with very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. That was fast. That's a quick trip to hatred. See, true love doesn't turn to hatred when it receives its physical fulfillment. But he does. I think I know why he hates her now. Because she's the reason he's an absolute fool. Or he blames her at least. Of course, he's the reason. But when he looks at her, he recognizes this is why I'm an outrageous fool which is going to be the reputation essentially for the rest of history. We're here talking about a fool tonight because of what he did. And, and I think in, in coming to his senses, he says two words to her. It's two words in the original language. In, this, in the ESV, get up and go. Essentially, it's up and out. Two words. After all his lustful preoccupation, he forces himself on her. Up and out. After he hates her. And then, of course, she tries to reason with him. And then he has to call his servant. What a pathetic pansy. He calls his servant. And, and look at the quotation here. There's something interesting here. Verse 17, put this woman out of my presence. The word this woman doesn't appear in the original text. It's literally, put this out. Put this out. It's, it's the language that one would use of essentially talking about taking out the old dishes or the garbage. He, essentially, he's gone from talking to her like as she, she's his sister to totally dehumanizing her. Take this out. Which, incidentally, is one of the dangers of pornography. Pornography dehumanizes women. Number one, pornography's fake. The people are actors. It's a total fraud. It's not real. And number two, the way women are depicted in pornography is just totally dishonoring. He's treating her like garbage. Take this out. And he doesn't even do it himself, the coward. And then he locks the door. What kind of a baby pansy man locks a woman out? Well, this kind. 
This is just a sordid, horrible picture of a weak man. Get out. Get out. This is why when you give yourself to someone, you, you, you make a commitment to them first. And that's why at, at its heart, love is about commitment. Commitment to another person. Well, let's see what Absalom's reaction to this is in verse 20. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house when King David heard of all these things. He was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister, Tamar. Look what it says in verse 20. Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? It didn't take Absalom long to put this together. And, and look at what he says to her. Hold your peace, my sister. What? It's terrible advice. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. Do not take this life-changing event to heart. What? What is he talking about here? And then, of course, we see his hatred. But notice, notice what, even though he says that to her, look at how the, the, the narrator of the text describes her life. So Tamar lived a desolate woman. Desolation is a part of the devastation of lust. That there are some sins that unalterably change your life. This kind of sin unalterably changes your life. Sexual sins just alter the nature of relationships. That, that they're just never the same. They're just never the same. And there is greater significance to the consequences of this sin than others. I'll show you that in the scripture in just a minute. But sexual sin creates scars that never heal. Uh, again, uh, things like premarital sex or incest, rape, adultery. You, you take these sexual sins, uh, if you think of them as a nail driving it into a piece of plywood, you can remove the nail, but the scar is still there. That's why we, we need to be gravely warned against the nature of these sins. They affect us in ways other sins do not. Essentially for this guy, once a rapist, always a rapist. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 to 20. Put sexual sin in its own category. Now you, you've heard it said, all sin is sin, or at least I've heard that said. It's part of that that's true. All sin is sin in the fact that it makes one guilty before God, and sin is a transgression of God's word and law. So yes, all sin is sin in that case. But all sins do not carry the same weight of consequence. And this sin is in its own category because the consequences it carries are so grave and devastating to human relationships. 1 Corinthians, the church of Corinth, in the city of Corinth, home to the temple of Aphrodite, infamous in the ancient world, or famous for some, for its over 1,000 court prostitutes. In the ancient world, people worshipped their false gods by engaging in relationships, illicit relationships. That's the way Aphrodite was worshipped in Corinth. That's the kind of place this church is found. And that's why there's so much about the sin of sexual immorality in the letters to the Corinthians. Look what Paul says to the Christians. 
1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. Again, there's a, there is a significance about this relationship. Verse 17, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. There is an essential text to teach teenagers to make sure they understand the logic and the warning and the theology in that text to protect them from lust and from giving into it and how severe and serious that it is. Of course, it's a text for every Christian, but I think particularly applicable to teenagers living in such a sordid world as we live in. Here you see Tamar goes about doing an act of kindness in obedience to her father, and she's left desolate. The rest of her life is affected and scarred because of this sin. And what a terrible perspective of sin the characters in this account have. There's Jonadab the crafty. Let me help you with this. Oh, you want this with your sister and you don't know how to get it? Let me help you. And uses his craftiness to conspire and plot to get his sister in Amnon's bedroom. What a, what a loser. And then there's Abnon, who's just blinded by lust and is an outrageous fool. You see what lust does to him? It makes him a fool. And then there's David. Well, where is David? You get one sentence here about him. We'll get to him in a minute. And then there's Absalom. Two years Absalom stews in his hatred and murderous plotting. All because of this sin. What is our perspective on sin? How do we view sin? Would we view lust as outrageous? That which could make me into an outrageous fool. That's a good protective against it. What it will do to us and its consequences. That it it can make a woman desolate. That it doesn't just affect you. It can affect others. We need to... View sin as the Scripture views sin and describe our own sin as the Scripture describes it. But in the realm of these sins, it's so easy to justify them or excuse them. No, the Christian's perspective is to repent, to resist, and to put the sin to death. That's our disposition. Another lesson we get from this comes from the cautionary example of David. Be assertive in your family. We should be assertive in our families, especially husbands, especially fathers. Look at verse 21, a brief verse that speaks volumes. When when King David, notice he's king. By the way, it's ultimately his jurisdiction and responsibility to enforce the law and to protect Israel and to know the law and to carry it out. When King David heard of all these things, He was very angry. Well, that's quite insufficient and inadequate. 
Of course someone would be angry about this and should be. He utterly fails his daughter. This is a terrible failure. Again, it's a a result ultimately of his previous sin. She is a virgin which puts her under his responsibility. And he fails her. And what ultimately is the result of his displeasure, his anger? What does his anger lead to? Nothing. It leads to Absalom's murderous hatred and then his exile, his self-imposed exile. David is utterly passive. And this is what we've got to guard against. We've got to be assertive to protect our children for this kind of depravity. Essentially, Tamar demands justice from the king, and she needs love from her father. She lives in Absalom's house. What's that about? And she gets neither. She gets neither justice from her father, the king, and she gets no love, apparently, from her father. Amnon, on the other hand, should have been punished. Tamar should have been vindicated. We know the facts. I mean, soon afterwards, Absalom puts together the facts. This is not hard to see what's happened. So David essentially doubly shirks and fails in his responsibility as a father and as a king. Let me show you David's, a little picture of David's family life. 2 Samuel chapter 9, this is the chapter about Mephibosheth. It just gives you a picture about what goes on in David's life. It's quite common for the, for the ancient world. 2 Samuel 9, 11, Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do so. Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. In the ancient world, particularly for kings and people in high authority, their table would contain their family and their most trusted servants. This is just, this is just what they do. They all come and eat together. So very likely, David's sons are regularly eating together. So here's Absalom sitting at the table with Amnon the rapist, plotting murder. Notice verse 23, and I think this speaks to David's inaction. Verse 23, after two full years with David doing nothing and Absalom making his plans, it takes a while to plan to put a guy to death, especially if he's one of the king's sons who doesn't trust you. Absalom accomplishes that plot. But again, I think what we learn from David is to be assertive in our family. A godly man takes actions against wrongs that are committed in his family. A godly father addresses and deals with sin in his family. A godly father protects his daughters. That we've got to not just look at our family and the goings-on in our family life, particularly when our children are under our care, we don't, we don't act just like a spectator. Now we bring the Word of God to bear. Something outrageous has happened that doesn't happen in Israel. David's angry. I think this is one of the greatest sins of men, passivity. I think this is found in the Genesis account. I think, I think this is part of Adam's sin. It's at least what led to it. Uh, the Genesis account... Uh, depicts the serpent tempting Eve and speaking to her. But it's evident Adam is there. She gives to her husband and he eats. What does he have to say about this serpent? This serpent that's beguiling his wife. What is his job anyway? To protect, to guard, to keep. And and, and a, a serpent that's cunning is talking to his wife, contradicting God's word, 
And what does he do? He takes the fruit and he eats. He's passive. It's the sin of man. We're going to deal with this in depth when we get to Ephesians 5. Because you find the same thing in Ephesians 5. With the instructions to husbands. And the, the undoing of the depravity of man in his sin in Ephesians 5. It's what a man should do. Here we see David's inactivity and passivity. It's just, a, it's just a, a deficiency in many males. So we've got to make sure that we err on the side of being proactive and assertive, especially in our families, with regard to sin, rather than being passive. It, it's just easier to be passive and not deal with sin. I mean, how do you have this conversation with Amnon? How do you bring him to justice? Well, you've got to take action. You don't just get angry and do nothing. We see also, I think, in this text, the depravity of males. And I understand women are totally depraved too. But this passage depicts the total depravity of males run rampant. Jonadab. Amnon. David. Absalom. All horribly evil in their sin. You know, if you look at the registered sex offenders, which you should, there's a lot more men than women. What you see here is just the depravity of males playing itself out because ultimately they can't control or bring under God's authority their lust. By the way, understanding this kind of depravity informs your parenting or your grandparenting. I think this is one of the most, I think total depravity is one of the most practical doctrines. Recognizing that, okay, so when the young boy wants to date your daughter, you recognize automatically from the scripture this is a totally depraved person. This just informs your understanding of, of, of humanity. And of every family member is totally depraved. You see what happens in David's household. This is why we've, especially as dads, have got to be... Per- proactive to put boundaries up to protect our children. Men, husbands, dads need to be assertive to protect their virgin daughters and their interaction with other boys, even family members. I mean, because essentially one incident can alter their life. One incident. Life changed forever. The, The most shocking thing, the number one thing that surprised me most in being a pastor and dealing with people, is how many people have been sexually abused. Unbelievable. And these are just the ones that I've heard about. Astounding how many people have been affected by that. So just be on guard and beware, especially as dads. What else can we do in light of this sordid depravity? Well, we want to counsel and influence young boys with godliness. And I believe and I'm hopeful the church is the best place for that to take, take place. Obviously in our homes, but also in the church. You want your young men to be influenced by godly men. I mean, just think if, if Amnon would have had a godly counselor instead of Jonadab the crafty. To say, no, you need to repent. This is terrible. You're going to be a fool. We need to train young men to treat women with dignity and honor. Train up young men to put their lust to death, not linger in it. Again, the example of Proverbs. To very specifically warn boys about 
the dangers in their own hearts. Specifically and biblically, we train up young men to live out 1 Timothy 5. Look at 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2. It talks about interactions with other people in the church. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters, in all purity. By the way, just focusing on the last one, how do you treat younger women in the church? Like sisters, in all purity. Males, this is your relationship to a younger woman in the church. Do you have a relationship? Yeah, but it's as a sister, and it's in all purity. We need to train our boys to think of women in the church like that. Older women are like mothers, highly regard and esteem them and listen to them. And the younger women, that's my sister. Like this, I mean, it happened this morning. I mean, with, the, with some of the students, I get introduced to boyfriends. And, you know, I never had a little sister. But, but I mean, I'm just thinking... You know, this is my sister. You know, don't mess with her. Because I know what this dude is. I pray he's not like Amnon. I pray we can be some God, give him some godly counsel. But I theologically understand what he is and what he's capable of. And it's just helpful to regard the younger women as sisters. A few more points. We need to take seriously the defense of our heart and soul, especially against lust. Temptations to lust are everywhere, prolific. We need to meditate on the consequences of sin, the devastation of sin. Uh, That's why we have chapters like this, detailed chapters. Like 2 Samuel 11, 12, and 13, the consequences of sin. David's life is never the same. Amnon's life is never the same. He's going to be dead. Tamar's life is never the same because of lust. And we should protect ourselves and our children with the word of God. How shall a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to the word of God. With my whole heart have I sought you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. There's the defense. There's the ultimate and most powerful boundary that we all need the boundary of the Word of God. It sets the parameters. It sets the limits. It reminds me of the limits that I do not transgress or trespass. And I meditated in my heart rather than meditating on lust. Let's conclude with Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. It's a fitting conclusion. Zechariah chapter 3. Verses 1 to 6. It's an Old Testament prophet. It's a precursor to the gospel. You find some characters here. Really interesting scene. A powerful picture of forgiveness and righteousness. You think about Tamar. A tragedy. Because of that loser. But friends, there's forgiveness and there's grace. There's righteousness through Jesus Christ. And yes, there is a sense in all of our sin renders us and makes us guilty before God. But there is righteousness through Christ. That's what this pictures. Righteousness for the sinner through Jesus Christ the Lord. So I think encouraging after reading such a horrible tale of 
unrighteousness and then of course reflecting on our own unrighteousness and failures. Zechariah chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So here's this evidently this this man serving God Joshua. It's a it's like a heavenly scene and there's Satan accusing him, and there's the angel of the Lord. Some people take the angel of the Lord to be Jesus. I don't know, but I don't go that direction, but whatever. Some people do. Maybe. Verse 2. It doesn't change the point here. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. By the way, that's not what a priest is supposed to wear. Verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure Vestments. I just love to think of Tamar in that place. That the Lord has the power to take away sin. And not only that, but to clothe us, all of us unworthy sinners, in pure vestments. That yes, in this life, because of what she was victimized with, she had to rip her clothes. And it affected the rest of her life. But through the power of God and Jesus Christ and the forgiveness through him and in him, our sins and our iniquities can be taken away. That's what happened with David. Remember the language, the Lord has put away your sin. Just love to imagine Tamar here as a believer. I hope she was. I hope she had faith. Isn't this just such an appropriate picture? Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. It's not on you anymore. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Jesus does that for us through faith. Because he died on the cross to pay for our sins, was raised from the dead... And one of the amazing benefits of salvation is righteousness. All these sins. And again, every one of us sexually immoral in one way or another. Righteous in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and your mercy. Help us be warned by the evil examples we saw tonight of Jonadab and Amnon and David's inactivity and Absalom's murderous plotting. And the way he foolishly spoke to his sister. Help us to be wise, God. and Wise to the deception of lust that it wouldn't destroy us. Wise to the devastation lust brings. How it destroys and lays low many. The many warriors have been brought down by lust. God, I pray we would not be one of them. Help us learn and be warned by David's inactivity. God, and be particularly men and husbands and dads, proactivity for righteousness' sake. God, I do pray you'd protect the young girls in this church from the wicked thoughts and intents of men and others. 
that you'd keep them pure. That, Lord, they'd live for you. And, God, the young men in our church, you'd give them a passion for holiness and righteousness and your word. And, God, they'd make godly husbands who would love their wives as Christ loved the church till death do they part. God, use us to influence the young men and women in our church and in our families that they would be godly and honor you. Protect us from this kind of sordid depravity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.